Well, why don't you go ahead and make your way back to your seats if you have not already done that. Mr. Nate, would you be willing to just close that door right next to you? Thanks. So I, I'm, by the way, I'm Dennis. If you don't know me, I'm Dennis. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I was just having a conversation with Tyler Kieran. Tyler is, uh, he was standing right here playing the guitar and singing beautifully like an angel. Um, and I was asking, I just asked Tyler, I was like, what, what, what as one of our worship leaders, what were you sensing happening in that moment as we were just singing together? And he described it as a moment where, like, it just felt like God was leading and that everyone somehow was in sync, that there were components of our band and the vocalists, like, they didn't rehearse, but yet they were still doing the exact same things without, like, Bob's nodding his head right now. Bob was our drummer. So that this idea, right, that, like, they practiced and then that they are walking, hopefully, in step with the Spirit and somehow sensing these things together and working in concert in unison with each other. And I love that Tyler used this language with me. He just said, like, it's like, you know, we, we did this, we, we rehearsed during the week. We practiced, we studied, we did the work, and then we show up and we can kind of lead vulnerably and freely. And so there's something about Tyler saying, like, we practiced all week long, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to do exactly what we practiced. It means that we were prepared to be in the space and in the room and to lead. Um, if it's okay, I'm going to approach the sermon the way that Tyler just described worship. So I've got a very well, I think it's a very well-crafted six-page sermon sitting in front of me. There's a joke in there too. But I'm going to approach this more as like, I prepared during the week. We're going to work our way through this passage together. And we're going to see what God wants to say to us together. So, last week we were in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It was that moment of Pentecost. It's the moment the Spirit comes and arrives in power and falls on and indwells all of the apostles. And we see the apostles, after receiving the Holy Spirit, start speaking in foreign languages that are languages that all of these people from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish people who are in Jerusalem, they hear the languages and they know that the apostles are speaking in their languages and they hear the apostles declaring the wonders of God. And we said last week that the Spirit empowers every person who believes in Jesus for mission and service, giving us everything we need to accomplish what only God can. That the Spirit gives us everything we need to accomplish what only God can. This passage this week, it's a continuation of this story from last week. So as we step into this, Peter and the apostles, right, these crowds have gathered. They've heard the apostles declaring the wonders and glories of God in their native languages. And so they've come together and they've asked this question in verse 13. They say, what does this mean? 
the crowds are looking at the apostles and they're saying, what does this mean? What does this whole situation and circumstance, what does it mean that we hear you speaking in all of these foreign languages that we know you don't know that are our languages? And for what it's worth, there are some theologians and commentarians who would say that that moment in Pentecost when the um, Spirit appears as tongues of flames above the apostles' heads, that there's a very good chance those tongues of flames are still above the apostles' heads as they start interacting publicly. So as the crowds are gathering and as the apostles start interacting with them, some theologians read that passage and would say, not only do the crowds see these apostles that they know don't know their language, speaking their language, but then they also see these tongues of fire above their heads, and they're like, what in the world does all of this mean? And so I was not planning on reading the whole passage because it's a long passage, but I am going to read the whole passage. It's Acts chapter 2. It begins in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So if you remember the previous passage, this is what some of the people in the crowd in an attempt to undermine and dismiss the apostles in this supernatural moment where tongues of fire appear and they hear the apostles speaking in their native languages. This is an accusation lobbed by the crowds at the apostles to say what's really happening isn't something that we should be paying attention to. It's not a supernatural act of God at all. They're drunk. I don't know about you, but I typically don't discover drunk people to all of a sudden know how to speak foreign languages. And so Peter is very concerned about establishing credibility. I want to make sure you hear that. Peter is very concerned about ensuring credibility in front of these non-believers. I think that's something that the church in our culture today, and to say it specifically, I think white conservative evangelicalism misses this badly. I don't think we can go around saying that we believe in conspiracy theories and then also telling people you need to believe in Jesus. I don't think we can do that. We lose credibility. And so, Peter is very clear We are a credible group of people who are about to speak to you about what you're seeing. He says, no, this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." What Peter is doing is saying to them, 
We are not drunk. What you are witnessing is the fulfillment of hundreds of years of Old Testament prophecy. Joel told you this would happen. Isaiah told you this would happen. Ezekiel told you that this would happen. And as God-fearing Jewish people, as Luke tells us they are, they would know these Old Testament passages. They would know what Joel said. They would know what Isaiah and Ezekiel said. They would know that in the last days, God would pour out His Spirit. The thing that the crowd doesn't know until Peter says it is that they are in the last days. Because in order for them to be in the last days, the Messiah has to come. In their Jewish faith, in order for the last days to begin, the Messiah has to come. And as we've talked about before, they have a very clear idea of what this Messiah is going to look like. Political leader, military leader, is going to restore their honor on a national stage in front of all of the other nations. They're going to throw off Roman oppression and rule, and they are going to retake their place. And then this Messiah is going to lead them, and this Messiah will then lead them in the afterlife. And what Peter is saying is that the Messiah has come, and you missed it. You missed it. And so all of a sudden, just this language where Peter says, in the last days, the prophet said this would happen, and now here it's happening, that means we're in the last days. All of these people in the crowd, all of a sudden their ears are perked up a little bit differently. What do you mean we're in the last days? The Messiah is supposed to come. So if you're right, and we are in the last days, then the Messiah is here somewhere, should be here. And Peter goes on to say, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. Accredited is a word that means proven. Jesus of Nazareth was a man proven by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. I love that as you yourselves know. It's like Peter is looking at them and saying, like, it was your ignorance that missed this. You know who the Messiah is supposed to be. You know he's going to come and he's going to have authority and power. You know he's going to do supernatural things. You know he's going to heal sick people. He's going to heal lame people. He's going to give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. You know that he's going to come and raise people from the dead. And you just saw someone do all that. You just watched for three years as this person walked among you doing everything that you already know the Messiah is supposed to do. But you didn't like the way he looked. You didn't like the way he talked. You didn't like that he didn't become the military leader that you wanted him to be. You didn't like that he didn't overthrow Rome. And so even though he was here and you saw it and you knew it, you saw all the miracles, wonders, and signs, 
You know he did everything that the Messiah is supposed to do. You just chose to reject him anyways. Peter goes on, he says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Listen to what Peter says. The religious leaders that you have aligned yourself with, the religious leaders that you have allowed to shape and form your understanding of what it means to follow God, the religious leaders who control the economic system of our culture, the religious leaders who control the social and political system of our Jewish culture, you aligned yourselves with them, and guess what? They are wicked people. Peter's not mincing words. He says, you threw yourself in with all of these religious leaders, and they are wicked people, and they led you to do something that you never should have done. With the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter goes on to say, the next verse begins, David said about him. And Peter's going to do something over these next few verses that the crowds are, it's going to be new teaching to them. They're not familiar with reading David's writings as being prophecies. They're not accustomed to thinking that David's language where David writes things like, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. They've never been taught to think that this language could apply to Jesus. And so Peter is taking this framework that they have, this knowledge that they have. You know David's writings. You know David's teachings. You know that he's speaking about the Messiah. What you don't know is that the Messiah is Jesus, and David was talking about Jesus. So now, in light of that, let me repeat to you all these things that David said, and don't you agree now? He's talking about Jesus. And he finishes in verse 36. When he gets to the end of his argument, I was thinking of um, our teachers in the room. This is like, in essence, a persuasive essay that Peter is delivering to the crowds. He's persuading them to see all of these things that they've seen and to interpret all of these things they've already studied in a new and different way. And he gets to the end of his argument in verse 36, and he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's Lord and Messiah. This one that you saw live for three years in public form, this one that you saw perform all of these miracles and supernatural wonders and healings, this one that you knew taught differently with power and authority, this one 
You knew he was the Messiah. All the signs were there. But you threw in with wicked people. And you killed the one you've been waiting thousands of years for. And what's amazing in this moment is that some in the crowd believe Peter. Towards the end of this passage, Luke makes it clear, some don't. I think in this passage it ends by saying that some 3,000 people are added to their number that day. And we oftentimes focus on 3,000 people. That's a lot of people. Look at the miraculous multiplicative growth of the early church, and what we miss is that there were probably thousands of people who decided not to believe this message. But when Peter finishes, this is what Luke tells us the crowds do. When the people, the crowds, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In light of this, what do we do? Okay, he was the Messiah. Okay, we killed him. Okay, David and the Old Testament prophets were foretelling us about him specifically. What do we do now? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and all who are far off. Repent and be baptized. Repent. Acknowledge the error of your ways. In light of this argument that Jesus really is the Messiah and you being cut to the heart and believing that he was the Messiah and now recognizing the wrong that you've done, repent. Recognize the error of your ways and turn away from it. Turn back towards Jesus and be baptized. It's this symbolic act where a person who professes faith in Jesus is lowered underneath the water and raised back up out of the water, being symbolically and spiritually connected to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Two ways of responding to this, repent and be baptized or turn your back on the message. At least in this case, Peter is not really giving them much of a middle ground. There's one of two options, repent and be baptized or turn your back on it. Something to talk about. We've done this weird thing, at least in churches that I've been a part of, where for some reason we've separated the act of professing faith in Jesus and being baptized as though they're like separate spiritual acts, as though like, we repent and believe in Jesus as our Savior, and that's like our engagement to Jesus. But baptism is like when we get married. And just to be really honest, the vast majority of Christians I know love being engaged to Jesus. 
but not being married to him. We'll say yes, but when you ask me, when you ask us, whoa, whoa, you want me to identify with him? You want me to, like, identify with his life, death, and resurrection. You want me to do the spiritual thing that will, like, mark me as a follower of Jesus. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I want to do that. I'll have conversations. I've had conversations over the years where people will say, like, you know, but what if in five years I change my mind? I don't, I don't know. But, like, if we're always going to what if it, we're never going to get married. We're always going to be engaged. This, for those in the room who are married... When you're engaged, you can always still get out of it. This one's different, though. Right? There's something that we know in an engagement period where it's like, okay, we're walking towards it, but we're not there. We're starting to act like it, but we're not there. There's also these moments, right, in an engagement period where we know, like, we can still be selfish and get away with it. But everything changes when we're married. <laughs> Sorry, Jared over here is trying to make jokes. Said you can't get away with it when you're over here. The whole thing that Peter is leading the crowds towards in this moment is you have to make a choice. And I think culturally, we hate making a choice and then having to stick to it, having to honor it. Gosh, once I make that choice, I don't get to just decide what I do on a Friday night anymore. I belong to someone else now. That other person gets to speak into my life. That other person begins to shape and form my life. I have to actually have to ask Julia if it's okay for me to hang out with my friends on a Friday night and play. I don't, it's not like I'm asking permission. But I think you know what I mean. I'm going to her and saying like, hey, I'd like to do this, but are you sure that's okay? Does that work? Are you okay with that? I don't get to exist in a world where I'm just like, yo, I don't care what you say. I'm doing this. Because that would be the moment I'd then be de texting Derek and be like, I'm not coming over tonight. <laughs> For some reason as Christians, we want to separate, repent, and be baptized all throughout the book of Acts 
they're linked together. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to see Peter himself go and meet with a man named Cornelius and his whole family. He's going to preach the gospel to them. Cornelius and his whole family are going to respond like these 3,000 people in the crowds do this day. They're going to say, yes, we believe that. What do we do? And Peter's immediate response is, be baptized right now. Later, even later, there's going to be an Egyptian eunuch. I can't wait to get to that story, by the way who's going to come to faith in Jesus. And then the eunuch's going to ask, what do I do now? And he's told, get baptized. And he's like, I see a little bit of water there. Should we just do it now? And the answer is, yes, you should do it now. Baptism is that moment when our repentance and profession become real. When they begin to shape and form our lives where Jesus is truly Lord and Messiah. So if you didn't see where this was going, I'll tell you now. If you are in this room and you have professed faith in Jesus, you've repented and believed but you have not been baptized, you need to get baptized. There's cards on your seats. They have QR codes on them. That takes you to a digital connect card. There's a comment box at the bottom of that digital form. You can just write in there, I want to be baptized. And Kenny and Shaq and I, our team, we will figure this out. We have, I don't know where we're going to do it. (laughs) But we will figure it out. Give us that challenge. Knowing Kenny, he'll probably try to figure out how to have like water dripping down from the... (laughs) It just, it is. Thank you. This passage... Peter is bringing his audience to the question that we were just singing through. The name of Jesus. Who is he? And is he going to be Lord and Messiah over your life? Is he? And for a moment, right, so many of us have had moments in our lives where we've had questions asked of us that our answers have changed the trajectory of our lives. Will you marry me? Do you want to go to that college? Are you sure you want to move to Pittsburgh? For Julia and I, it was people saying, you're not really going to raise your family in the north side, right? Every one of us in our lives, no matter where we are in our life, has had a question asked of us that our answer to it, we might not have noted in the moment, but our answer to it has changed the trajectory of our lives. Peter's bringing his audience to that moment, and I believe it's a moment for us too. Who is Jesus to you? Is he Lord and Messiah? 
And if he is, that changes everything about our lives. And to be clear, it doesn't become like drudgery and rule-keeping. In my personal experience, well, there's a lot of ups and downs with it, right? If we actually follow Jesus, then our lives are going to look like Jesus's. And that means there are going to be mountaintop moments where we experience things that only God can do. And there are going to be moments where it feels like people are literally trying to kill us. And everything in between, right? Like we tend to think that following Jesus and living Jesus' life just means triumph and glory. There's some of that. There's also a lot of pain and trouble, and persecution. It's all of it. I will say out of my own personal experience, there's not a better journey to be on. I mean, just to go back. When Julia and I looked at all those people who said, you're not really going to raise your family in the north side, and we said, we sure are, a little bit of that was like my impish personality. I was like, oh, you don't want me to? Well, uh, we will. (laughs) This isn't a reality if we don't say yes to that. I have no idea how we ever get to a point where Garden City becomes a reality if we say no to living in the north side. Who do you believe Jesus is? Because I believe as we were experiencing in worship, I believe over the past few weeks, I'm not quite sure what it is yet. I don't think our team is quite sure what it is yet. If you have a sense of what it might be, please tell us. We have this sense that God and his spirit are doing something. And I believe it begins last week with us recognizing that his spirit is in us. It is in us. The spirit is empowering us. The spirit is sending us out in service and mission so that the spirit can accomplish through us what only God can accomplish. And all of it starts with our answer to who is Jesus. Real quick. There's this story in the Gospel of Matthew. This will be my last thing. There's a story in the Gospel of Matthew. Because this moment in Acts where Peter is professing publicly in front of thousands of people who just killed Jesus, that boldness and courage was birthed in a private moment. If you remember back to Matthew, there's this moment where Jesus is with his disciples and he looks at them and says, who do all the people say I am? Who are all the people saying I am? It's just this moment with Jesus and his disciples. And his disciples say, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you might be Jeremiah, Elijah, maybe another prophet. And then Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter looks back and says, 
you're the Messiah. And Jesus in that passage ultimately says, yep, you're right. I am. It was this private moment between the disciples and Jesus for the first time that they declared him as Messiah. And now here we see Peter publicly declaring it in a place and in a way that could absolutely go sideways and where he could get killed. What we declare in this space becomes what we declare in public space. So I am going to ask and then I'm going to pray. Who do you believe Jesus is? Jesus, thank you for coming and living among us. Thank you for living a perfect life. Thank you for sacrificing yourself so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could declare you Lord and Messiah. Be at work in our hearts, Jesus, we pray. Amen.